You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So where do you think we can find the best examples of leadership in our world today? What kind of spheres of influence would you point to as examples? An obvious one is Father's Day. You might say the family. A father who models good leadership. That's a great one. Another one could be the the business world. A place where managerial geniuses lead companies and organizations to growth and, and success. Or maybe you're, you're the athletic type and you'd think sports, right? Coaches who, who lead teams to national championships and world championships. Or maybe, this is a good Boston one, right? The academic world. Good leaders who are doing uh, cutting-edge research and leading minds and teaching others. I think these are all great and wonderful uh, spheres to find good examples of leadership in the world around us. But it's interesting that when we come to God's Word, the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5, there's a different and unique example given. And this, is, this question, what does leadership look like for God's people, is, is not just a New Testament question. It wasn't just a, a question for Peter. Uh, it's been a question all throughout the Bible. In fact, one example is the prophet Samuel. Before we get to First Peter, I want to consider him for a moment. He wrestled with this question of what should a leader look like for God's people. And God had Samuel, this prophet, looking for a new king in Israel. The last king, who was the first king of Israel... Saul has, had abandoned God, he had rejected God's ways, rejected the Lord, and so it was time to find a new king, and the Lord directed Samuel to the house of a man named Jesse, and Jesse had a number of, of sons, and Jesse apparently thought, I have a good line of sons who would make a good king for God's people, so he, he lines them up preparing for Samuel's coming, and all of them are standing there ready to see who who is the next one to be anointed, except for one who's left out. And so 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 6, reads this. When they came, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. 
But behold, he, this is David, is keeping the sheep. He's not here because he's a shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And so we see here an example of godly leadership that is not like what the world expects. And the example that is given in David, and we see it all throughout Scripture, is that of a shepherd, one who leads a flock. Now, we don't know the career choices of, of David's brothers. There's only speculation here. What we do know is Jesse thought that they would all be a good fit for leadership, right? And he thought, for whatever reason, I think part of it was age, part of it was also uh, how David was wired and what he did as a shepherd. He didn't think David was ready for that. And so we can sort of reimagine the scene in our own modern day setting, right? Is, is it Eliab, the businessman? He's a managerial genius, right? Surely he's the one. He'd be great to lead a nation. He'd be great to lead God's people. No? Okay, what about Abinadab? He's a Division I coach, right? He's got five championship rings. He'd make a, a great leader. No, not him? Okay. What about, what about Shema? He's a scholar. He's a thought leader like no other. Surely he'd be a great leader for God's people. And on down the line, no, 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 till it gets to David, the keeper of the sheep. This is who is to lead God's people. Now, it's understandable that when I ask you what you think is a good example of leadership in our world today, that you would not say shepherd, right? Because as far as I know... None of you are shepherds in here by trade. In fact, I would venture to guess you probably don't personally know a shepherd. Right? This is not the world that we live in. It's not our context here in greater Boston. And so this is why, as we talk about leadership in the church, which is what Peter is addressing here, it is so important for us to think slowly and carefully about passages like this because what they do is they reorient us to what God's purpose for leadership is in the church instead of us being influenced by the outside world. And God's pattern for leadership in the church, this image, is shepherd leadership, like a shepherd and his flock. And this idea, by the way, of shepherd leadership that we'll talk about this morning, it's not just from a few select passages. It's a theme we see all throughout the scripture, and it, it centers on the fact that God is a shepherd of his flock, of his people. Listen to Genesis 48, 15. Jacob, at the very end of his life, he's on his deathbed, and he summarizes his life, and he declares that God has been his shepherd all of his life to this day. Or most famously, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I lack nothing. Jesus in John chapter 10 calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In the book of Acts, as the church is um, expanding, elders are appointed to, to oversee, pastor, and lead the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the apostle Paul is telling these Ephesian elder pastors he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you 
overseers. You say pastors there. To care for or shepherd the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. In fact, as we've journeyed through 1 Peter, Peter has already given this imagery to us referring to Jesus. He tells us, 1 Peter 2.25, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's an important context for 1 Peter, because what, it, what we're, we're talking about this morning are the shepherds of God's flock in local churches. But Peter, in verse 4 here, calls Jesus Christ the chief shepherd, meaning all other shepherds, pastors, elders, leaders, are under-shepherds of Jesus, the chief shepherd. And so, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 5, he's a, Peter's approaching the end of his letter, and he's been speaking to the church as a whole, mostly. But here he zeroes in, and he turns to speak directly to church pastors, elders, who would have been the first to experience this opposition from the outside world that is growing for Peter's hearers and readers. They would have had, in a sense, a target on their back because they are the public leaders of God's people. And so what he's doing here is he's exhorting the pastors to cling to the essentials of godly shepherding. That's what 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5 is all about. And so as we work through this this morning, we're going to see four things as we talk about eldering and pastoring. And we'll talk about those words briefly in a moment. But first, we see the primary task of eldership in verses 1 and 2. Second, we see the Christ-like heart of eldership in verses 2 through 3. Third, we see the future reward of eldership, verse 4. And then in verse 5, the humble response to eldership. Now, before we even jump into the text, some of you are probably thinking, what does this have to do with me? Right? You're a pastor talking to a room of mostly non-pastors, non-elders, and you're talking about what it means to be a pastor. Why should I care about your job description? Right? That's true, but it has everything to do with the church as a whole. Because if the shepherd of the flock is not a good shepherd, the sheep suffer, right? The church is prone to attacks from the outside, prone to wandering. They're starved because they're not led to pasture. And likewise, if there's not godly, Christ-like leadership in the church, the church will pay the price for that. So this is an important passage for every single Christian, not just those who are in the office of pastor elder now, or those who aspire to be. And that leads to a second reason this is important. Because 1 Timothy 3.1 says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, he desires a noble task. So it's our prayer, as God gives growth to our church and, and blesses our church, it's our prayer, men of Seven Mile Road, that through biblical reflections on texts like this, the Holy Spirit would awaken in you that noble desire to pastor and elder the flock of God. Right? So, then, what does godly leadership look like in the church? The task, the heart, the reward, the response. That's where we're headed. Number one, the primary task of eldership. Let's look at verse one again. So I exhort the elders among you as a feller, fellow, not feller, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Few few notes here that are really important. Note that elders is plural here. Not elder, not solo pastor of the church. All New Testament churches were governed by a, a plurality of elders, right? Not just one solo pastor. There is no category in the New Testament for a church in which one elder exercises sole authority over a church. Okay? It's important to note. Another important note here is this. In the New Testament, the words elder, overseer, and pastor are used to refer to the same office. Okay? So they're used interchangeably. There's different nuances and responsibilities attached to, to how those words are used. But they are talking about the same thing, not three different things. So as you hear me say this morning, overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, we're talking about all of the same thing here. And that's who Peter is talking to. So in our church, that would be right now myself, Pastor Clint, and Pastor Connor. Right? So then here's what he says. Shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the command. That's the task. Shepherd the flock. And the idea here is this. Pastors, elders, shepherds are to nurture, cultivate, and sustain those entrusted to their care. That's the primary task of the elder pastor. Now remember those leadership examples I, I gave at the beginning? Business world, coaching world, academic world, family world. Notice that this is the brilliance of God's word. Do you notice how shepherding includes all three of those things? Right? If a shepherd is leading his flock, he, he has to have a sense of uh, managerial oversight. Right? Where's the flock going to go? When are we going to go there? How are they going to eat? How can I keep them safe? Right? There's, there also needs to be a sense of coaching. How can I encourage the flock in the right direction? How can I exhort and correct when I, when I need to? And there is, of course, the, the sense of, of, of being a, a sort of scholar. Right? I need to study and, and, and research and understand the lay of the land as I lead this flock. But all of those things are under the banner of nurturing and caring for the flock. That is the primary task of elders. Not building a name for ourselves, not building a big organization that brings in great revenue, but nurturing and caring for God's people in the local church. That's the task that P uh, Peter begins exhorting them to. And this shepherding, unlike our expectations in this fast-paced world, this shepherding is slow careful, cultivating work, right? Shepherds cannot keep a distance from their sheep in order to shepherd properly. They have to be among the sheep, among God's people, caring for them, correcting them, leading, and loving. So that's the task, shepherd the flock of God. But what are the means for the task? Well, the primary way shepherds care for the souls of their flock is this, the ministry of the word and prayer. That's how shepherds care for the flock. And that happens both in public and in private. Now we're going to expand out of 1 Peter and see this in, some other, in another text. But the temptation, know this, the temptation for pastors, elders, whether they're vocational, meaning it's their job, 
or whether there are volunteer or lay elders, the temptation is to neglect this primary task for a number of reasons. One is the tyranny of the urgent. Right? There's a million other things to do. There's emails to answer. There's soccer weeks to plan. Right? There's all sorts of these other things to do. Good and important things. But the primary way shepherds shepherd the flock is through the word and prayer. And it cannot be neglected. In fact, this, this threat, this temptation came immediately after the birth of the church in the book of Acts. The church is, is growing rapidly after Pentecost. There are real and important practical needs that need to be met and they're not being met in the congregation and they need to be addressed. And the temptation is likely among the people, well, the apostles, they should do it because it's, it's their job. They're the guys who have been with Jesus, so they should help meet all these practical needs. But the apostles come together and they resist that temptation. And instead they appoint others to meet these needs. And here's how they respond in Acts chapter 6 verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the result, Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, don't, don't mishear this. Don't mishear what they're saying. This doesn't mean that all pastors do is pray and preach, right? Especially in a church planning setting. You guys who know that, you know us, you know that, right? It means also designing websites, stacking chairs, doing all sorts of different things. So that, that's not what they're saying here. Nor are they saying we're, we're too good for, for this. That's not what the apostles are, are saying. They're not saying the need's not important. In fact, the need in Acts chapter 6 was extremely important. Widows were being neglected in the distribution of food. They said this needs to be addressed. But they knew that the primary way for the flock of God to grow and be nurtured and for the gospel to go forward was through the word and prayer. So they said we must commit ourselves to this task. In fact, I wonder, as Peter is writing this, I imagine he has the words of Jesus in mind as he was restored on the beach after, the res uh, after Jesus' resurrection. After denying him three times, he then confesses his love to Jesus three times and is restored. And do you know what Jesus tells him? Peter, feed my sheep. That's the primary task. And that's the means, is the word and prayer. And so this happens both in public and in private. It happens publicly through the, the weekly preaching of the words, what we're, we gather to do. In fact, if you read through the New Testament this week and you were to mark every uh, mention of what pastor elders are, are to do, you will not find any task more prominent than the preaching of God's word. It's just the reality in the New Testament. John Owen says the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. He is no pastor who does not feed the flock. Right? We pray together through our liturgy. We open the word. We sing the word, pray the word, preach the word. Because that is how the flock is fed. It is how we're led to pasture. But it's not just public ministry. It's also private and informal ministry as well. And this is why I think the imagery of shepherding is so important to sort of recapture in our, recapture in our vision of the church and leadership today. 
because we've been so informed by the outside world that we see a separation between pastors who are sort of up on their, their pedestal and they do their public ministry and then they go do the rest of their thing for the rest of the week. But shepherds don't do that. Shepherds are among the sheep. That means elder pastor shepherds are to meet with members, to care for them, to pray for them, to take the word and apply it, not just in a formal sermon, but in conversational ways. They're to celebrate together, to weep together, pray for the flock, apply the gospel to every area of life. They're to be among the sheep. The greatest picture we see of this private ministry for us is the chief shepherd himself, Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I didn't realize this until someone said, read through the Gospels and make a note between the public ministry of Jesus and the private ministry of Jesus. And which one do you think is more common? It's the private ministry of Jesus. Yes, he preached publicly. But he also cared for his disciples. He wept over the death of his friend. He ministered to the broken, to the outcast, to the neglected. He was among them constantly, just as a shepherd is among his sheep. He was patient and gracious, yet he was bold and clear in speaking the truth of God's word, public and private. And here's the incredible thing about Jesus. He was so approachable, right? He didn't have this celebrity status where he he speaks and then you can't approach him. He was so approachable that the rich young rulers... And the despised and outcasts and ashamed adulterers both felt comfortable around him, right? He loved all of his sheep. He loves all of his sheep. The smelly ones, the ones that keep trying to get away from the flock, the injured ones, the bold ones. Why? Because they're all his. And that is, that is the task that is given to the elders of God's people. So as under-shepherds, where to do likewise, right? Public ministry, private ministry of word and prayer, caring for, guiding, leading the flock. It's not the only thing, but it is the primary thing that needs to be done, and it informs everything else. And the goal of that, so the task is shepherding, the means is the word of God and prayer, then the goal is maturity in Christ, right? That's the goal for the flock. Colossians 1, 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the task. Nurture people by the word and prayer in public and in private towards maturity in Christ. Number two, the Christ-like heart of eldership. So that's the task. What is the heart? Here Peter's getting at motivations of an elder pastor. And we see sort of three things at play here. He talks about a willing heart, an eager heart, and a humble heart. So he goes on and says that pastors are to exercise oversight, meaning they're to lead and direct with a willing heart. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. Pastoral leadership, according to Peter, isn't to be this burdensome obligation, but this joyful privilege. It's not a mere duty, it's a delight to lead the flock of God. And I think the context here is really important because remember... Peter is writing to Christians, and and here specifically to pastor elders, where there is increasing opposition to Christianity from the outside culture. So it's understandable that Peter is going to to give this exhortation to willingly lead. 
Peter's essentially saying this, listen, pastors, those of you who publicly lead will be more prone to opposition because of your, the public nature of what you do, right? He might say in modern day, your picture's on the website, right? So if opposition comes, they're going to come to you first. And you'll be tempted to shirk back from these responsibilities out of maybe the, the fear of man or what the world may do to you, but don't shirk back from your responsibility to lead God's people, even though it may mean that you suffer for it. Lead willingly. I think a wonderful recent modern day example of this is Pastor Wang Yi of Early Rain Covenant Church in China. His church refused to capitulate to government regulations that were compromising the gospel for his church, so they, they took a stand. They were warned sort of a network of house churches as one church, but the leadership refused to stop proclaiming Christ and caring for the people. And then the house churches a few years ago, 2018, 2019, began to be raided, and their pastor, Pastor Wang, was arrested and sentenced to nine years in prison. And friends, if you want a wonderful supplement to, to read alongside 1 Peter, I'm going to send you Pastor Wang's letter right after he got arrested this week. It will bless your soul and it will challenge you. And you'll see the heart of a pastor who is, was facing this sort of opposition, that temptation to be reluctant to shepherd God's people, maybe pull away a little bit. You'll see a pastor willing to serve and care for the flock of God, even though it costs him his personal freedom. Because in his own words, quote, the cross means being willing to suffer where you don't have to suffer. And that's what Peter is saying to pastors. Be willing to lead and care for the flock, even when it might mean not personal gain for you, but it might mean personal suffering for you. And this willingness shouldn't surprise us, not only because we've been seeing this theme in Peter's writing time and time again, but because it's the way of Jesus, right? Jesus willingly and joyfully went to the cross, and he is the chief shepherd, that all under-shepherds are to follow. John 10, 18, no one takes my life, Jesus said, but I lay it down on my own accord. You hear that willingness? Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus willingly and joyfully went about his mission to care for the flock of God, even though it cost him greatly. Pastors are to do the same. Peter then goes on to say, at the end of verse 2, that leadership not, should not only be done with a, a willing heart, but also an eager heart. He says, not for shameful gain, but is to be done eagerly. So pastoral leadership is not self-centered and greedy, but it's eager to serve. It's a servant leadership. Now, what is, what is this shameful, dishonest gain that Peter is talking about here? Well, the language he uses is directly financial, okay? And so, not using the pastorate, your position of leadership, for financial gain. Now, the, the New Testament gives clear precedent for, for paying vocational pastors. So, he's not saying that here. Some have misused this text to say, see, pastors shouldn't be paid. They shouldn't be a full-time job. But 1 Timothy 5.17 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. At the same time, 
just like any position of power, mingled with the depravity of the human heart, the pastoral office can become a place where it is used for shameful gain. I'm sure you've heard of the, the obvious examples of stories of pastors taking ridiculously exorbitant salaries and feeding off weak members in the congregation, or the most common example would be the prosperity gospel, preaching that if you just give money to the church, if you give money to the leadership, God will then fix all of your problems. He'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's shameful gain. I once heard a pastor say, this is not a joke. It sounds like a joke. It's not. He said he equated Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as, it, as, as church leaders today driving in Bentleys. That was how he justified luxurious cars. He said a donkey back in the day was just like a Bentley today. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to know that that is not true. Right? Now, if you own a Bentley, no judgment, right? but he had like 10 of them. That's shameful gain, right? But there's another form of shameful gain that is, I think, much more common and I would, I would say even more dangerous because it's more subtle. And we can call it the glory of self. Using a position of leadership to glorify your own name. Paul Tripp writes about this. He says, perhaps in ministry, there is no more potent intoxicant than the praises of men. There's no more dangerous form of drunkenness than to be drunk with your own glory. That's shameful gain. Peter says you should have none of it. It's not about desiring the approval of others, the praise of people, building your own platform, but loving and serving the flock eagerly. Charles Spurgeon writes in his book, Lectures to My Students, he says if a man can detect after the most earnest self-examination, any other motive than the glory of God and the good of souls in his seeking eldership, he had better turn aside from it at once. For the Lord will abhor the bringing of buyers and sellers into his temple. You hear that? He's reminding churches and pastors, the glory of Jesus is not for sale and it only belongs to him. So instead, pastors are to lead from a heart that is so satisfied in Jesus, so content in him, that there is an eagerness to love and serve the flock without any concern about personal notoriety or the praises of men. Right? So then in verse 3, as Peter goes on, we see that elder pastors are to shepherd with a humble heart, not domineering, but as examples. So pastoral leadership, willing, eager, but also humble, not domineering. And to hold out this exemplary life for others. And I think Jesus gives the best commentary on this in Matthew chapter 20. When he says, when it says Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, right, think, say not, think non-believers, they lord it over them. In other words, they're domineering. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of leadership that is to be carried out in the church. And when pastors lead in this way, they're examples to the flock. 
They're not domineering, but they're, in, they're exemplary Christians. In fact, it's really interesting. If you look at all the lists of what an elder must be in the New Testament, which would be, this would be one, for uh, Titus 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice how, how many of the qualifications, save a few, apply to every single Christian, right? D.A. Carson writes about this. He says the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there's nothing about superior IQ. I'm really thankful for that one. Charisma, powerful personality, or the like. The Christian minister, elder pastor, is supposed to be gentle. Not supposed to get drunk and so forth. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Indeed, with only a couple of exceptions, all of the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. For instance... The elder is supposed to be given to hospitality, but that's demanded for all Christians in Hebrews 13. What this means then is that the Christian pastor must exemplify in his own life the virtues and graces that are demanded of all the people of God. There are only a couple of entries here that cannot be demanded of all Christians. Not a novice and able to teach. Everything else is the responsibility of all believers, not just the pastors of believers. Or to be examples to the flock. And I think the best way to, to summarize this kind of leadership is exemplary servant leadership. When elder pastors are, are committed at a heart level to willingly and eagerly and humbly and lovingly and sacrificially serving the flock by leading, there's a reward far greater than anything this world has to offer. And that leads us to number few, num- number three, uh, the future reward of eldership. So then he says in verse four, and when, he looks toward the future, and when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter uses this Greco-Roman imagery of athletes and military uh, victors who would receive a, a crown that was fastened out of oftentimes out of leaves if it was someone very prominent this would be uh, it would still be made of leaves but it would be um, it would be gold made leaves and they would put this on their heads and what Peter is saying here is that is the reward but it's not an earthly reward it's an unfading crown of glory that Jesus gives the rewards coming and it's far greater than anything this world has to offer it's certainly far ga- greater than shameful gain in any earthly crown. And here's what this does for us. This verse is meant to fix our eyes. The pastor elder, those who aspire to it, and the church on the chief shepherd and the eternal riches that are offered in him. The victory is sure, Peter says. You notice, he, he, says, he doesn't say if the chief shepherd appears, you might receive the crown of glory. He says when you will. When he comes, you will receive this crown of glory. And this helps re- reorient our hopes for the church, right? The success of, listen, the success of Seven Mile Road, Waltham, is not dependent upon our pastoral ministry or any one man or any particular vision. The success of the church at large is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon the chief shepherd. And he will return. And he will give the glory. 
You know what's so incredible about this crown is if, if you turn to, to the end of the story in Revelation, you see elders receiving crowns, crowns of glory. And you know what they immediately do? They take them off and cast them at the feet of Jesus, right? The measures of success are not defined by worldly standards, but are determined and secured by Jesus, the chief shepherd. This victory is sure. This means the hero of this passage are not the, the shepherd, the under-shepherds. The hero of this church or any other church is not any pastor or a group of pastors. The hero is Jesus, right? And we're to fix our eyes on him in faith and confidence that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The victory is sure and the crown is unfading. These wreath crowns that were given to military and athletic victors, they, they would fade away. Even the gold ones will one day fade away. All earthly treasures will fade away. The praises of man, that positions of leadership tempt us to, to feed off of, those will fade away. The sin and the sorrows and the heartache of church life and ministry will fade away. But pastors who labor faithfully and humbly, relying upon Jesus, will receive a heavenly reward that will last forever. And that reward is the glory of Jesus. And so this motivates shepherds to endure difficulty, to endure opposition, motivates the church to do this as well, endure struggles within the church that are inevitable to come. And it stirs pastors to work not for earthly gain, but for eternal gain. And if, if pastors remember that the sheep belong to the chief shepherd and care well for the flock, feeding them and leading them by God's grace, dependent upon his spirit, then they will hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the reward. Peter says, that's what you should fix your eyes upon. But there's another way, there's another meaning in it, wrapped up in this imagery of, of a crown. It's this future return of Christ, but Paul uses it a little different in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Listen to what he says. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus as at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. You, you hear what Paul is talking about here? He's saying the privilege of seeing the fruit of pastoral labors, the souls of the flock who have come to Christ those who have been encouraged and built up and one day reach full maturity in Jesus when they see him face to face. Paul says that is a reward. That is a crown. That is a joy to godly pastor elders. Right? So the victory is sure. The crown is unfading. And the reward is the eternal glory in Jesus Christ. And then number four, the humble response to eldership. So now Peter turns to the church as a whole, and he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, the word younger here doesn't refer to age, just like elder does not refer to age, but refers to um, a sense of spiritual maturity. So, so he's essentially saying this is to be the response of the church to godly eldership, humble submission. Clothe or adorn yourself with humility because 
the worst enemy to any church, to any pastorate, to any Christian is pride, which exalts itself above God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this grace that Peter refers to when he quotes Proverbs 3, 34, he's not talking about saving grace. When he says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, he's talking about an enabling grace, an energizing grace that empowers the church on the mission that it's called it to. So Paul tells us of of Christ clothing himself in humility in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and here's that clothing language, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's the passage in a nutshell. Pastors, be humble and followable like Jesus. Church, humbly follow like Jesus. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, that's the command here to the church. Follow. Humbly follow godly leadership. But what I want to do, because that's really the only direct application here, I want to end our time by adding four things that you can pray for the pastors of your church. And you can pray this for the pastors of any church, and you can pray this for future elder pastors as well. Okay, There's four things. Number one, pray the words of 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul tells Timothy, keep close watch on your life and doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pray that elder pastors would keep a close watch on their life and doctrine. Second, let this time be a path of prayer for you. Pray that we would not neglect the calling laid out here in 1 Peter 5. The task, the heart, the reward of godly leadership. Third, pray that pastors would not neglect their families, which is their first ministry, their first church, their first home, their marriages, their children, the most important flock to them. And then fourth, pray, and this encompasses it all, pray that we would not neglect our souls. Pastor Robert Murray McShane, he once said this as a pastor, he said, what my people need most is my holiness. Now, a lot of people have criticized McShane for this. They say, well, that sounds really, sounds like an overstatement. It sounds too pastor-centric and, and not Christ-centric enough. And I, I understand that criticism, but I think McShane's reasoning here is this. Elders must be close to Jesus if they're going to lead the flock to Jesus. Right? So what God's people need most in their leaders are those who care for their souls, those who pursue Jesus in their own lives, that they're ready to shepherd the flock unto Jesus. And so church, let's pray to this end. For when elders humbly shepherd the flock with the heart of Jesus, and when members humbly follow with the heart of Jesus, the church is built up, the kingdom is advanced, and the chief shepherd is glorified. Let's pray together.